I want to introduce our study this morning by talking about triumphal arches. Triumphal arches. What that doesn't mean, because I realize we're Americans here and we don't think about history very much, um, that doesn't mean you can all be excited when you see the golden arches because you're finally at McDonald's. Uh, Triumph. Uh, It doesn't mean, oh, we're finally to St. Louis. It's the only arch that we seem to talk about in our family. Um, a triumphal arch is something that we see, we've seen for thousands of years uh, in history. And it would be put up to honor a great king and a great army or military. Uh, sometimes truly great people. Sometimes they were people who just thought they were great. And they constructed these arches for themselves. Uh, some of you would be familiar with, well, the most three, three most familiar triumphal arches that I'm aware of uh, would be, number one, the one that is on the Champs-Élysées in France. You see it at the Tour de France in July, if you're godly and like cycling. Um, the Arc de Triomphe, the Arch of Triumph, okay? Uh, that was started, he didn't see the end of it, uh, but started by Napoleon uh, to honor the man for his small man complex, I guess. To honor his great victories, uh, they would have the Arch of Triumph erected. Another popular one you perhaps have seen uh, in pictures or in person, uh, the second most, um, probably the second most famous one, but you see now and then would be next to the Colosseum in Rome, uh, you have the Arch of Constantine that he had built there. It's right there next to the Colosseum. Uh, or another one, probably third most famous, but actually is, should be the most famous because it's where the other two get their inspiration, and that would be the Arch of Titus. Uh, in Rome, further away in the ancient ruins, the Arch of Titus is there. It's fascinating to look at. You can look at it on the internet or in person because it's acknowledging and celebrating uh, the defeat of Jerusalem uh, in AD 70. And so you see them, even the, the inscription, and you see the pictures and the iconographic uh, nature where they're taking their spoils like menorahs and they're taking the valuable things uh, from Jerusalem. Well, I mentioned these three important arches, these triumphal arches, not because I'm trying to get you to go on a trip with me to Rome um, or to France, although that would be nice. Um, I'm not trying to get you to be more interested in history, though that would probably be nice as well. Uh, I mentioned these famous arches of triumph because today we're going to talk about Jesus' triumphal entry. Okay, in John chapter 12, and so you can go ahead and turn there. There is no arch involved. Um, But there are similar kinds of backgrounds and themes if we talk about the origin of these arches. Again, many times they were put up after the fact. They were put up to commemorate, to celebrate either someone or uh, to, to honor someone else or to honor oneself. But it seems like originally the idea was a bit different. And the idea would be this, and this is related to our text. If our king and our military were out fighting a battle and we had heard through messenger that it was a victory 
or multiple battles and they were victorious and we were going to be safe and we were going to have prosperity and we were going to be able to relax, if you will, and it would be good days ahead. We would be able to eat and all of these kinds of things. We would be excited. The people would be excited and they would want to show honor to the military. They would want to show honor to the conquering, delivering, saving king. And so let's make sure that we have our greeting party, if you will, and let's construct an arch. Probably not one that would take hundreds of years to build, centuries to build, no. It would be probably a lot more makeshift looking, but nevertheless symbolic. Let's have them enter through the arch. Let's have them enter through as an act of honor, as an act of commemoration, as an act of celebration, because they've been victorious for us. Okay? That's the idea. And I bring it up this morning because while there's no arch that Jesus goes through, we're going to see some similar ideas because we're going to see that the people go out to him to greet him as he is entering into the city and he is addressed as one who is victorious, a delivering, saving, providing king. Okay? So with that in mind, let's go ahead and begin looking at our text, the, the triumphal entry of Jesus. Uh, maybe we should call it the so-called triumphal entry because it is and it isn't. More irony, but I used up all my irony points last week uh, in our study, but it's very ironic that he's the triumphant one who's going to be crucified. So let's go ahead and look at the setting first in verse 12. If you want to go ahead and look there at chapter 12, verse 12. The next day, likely Sunday, the Sunday before crucifixion, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Just a few things to keep in mind, even from that verse regarding the setting. So here we are, final week. Jesus has done all of these things that he's done, all of the signs of, in John. Not just miracles, but signs that would show he's the one, that authenticate him. In, insofar as he's even shown that he has power over death because he's raised Lazarus from the grave. And so we have that, that going on before eyewitnesses people have seen. And not only that, it's Passover, as our text will have us to know. And if it's Passover, that means the crowd is a significant crowd because we could have, could, historians would say, up to a million people, as I've been mentioning. So there's all kinds of people there. It's Passover, so it's celebration. Not only is it a celebration, we're celebrating, if we're Jews, what God did in delivering his people out of oppression slavery, bondage from the Egyptians. There would have been enthusiasm. There would have been nationalism, nationalistic kind of zeal. Remember, they're under Roman occupation, Roman oppression, and they want out from underneath that, and they know that God has delivered them before. They want a delivering, saving king, Messiah. Oh, the Old Testament promises a Messiah. Jerusalem, the capital city where the temple is. And there's going to be this victory procession for him. He's been anointed as king earlier, though ironically so. 
Then we come to verse 13. Look there, the response of the populace, of the people. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. There's this, let's go out because there's triumph involved. This is not a brand new idea. It's not without symbolism. Let's go and let's bring him into our city, our reigning, ruling, anointed, victorious king. And boy, do we ever need one to deliver us from this oppression. This is where we get Palm Sunday. We'll talk about that maybe at the end, whether or not that's a good idea to celebrate these people's religious zeal. But they take palm trees, which has all kinds of history involved. Jericho's close by. They probably got a lot from where uh, they would have received from Jericho. Jericho in Deuteronomy 34 is called the city of palm trees. And the Psalms, at least in Psalm 92, it's associated with righteousness. I wouldn't push that too much. But it is known to happen. In the Old Testament, the palms are associated not with this feast, but extra-biblical history would have us to know that by now, the palms are not only associated uh, with one particular feast, they're, they're associated with any kind of feast. Because it has to do with kings, it has to do with victors, it has to do with deliverance. So just to give you a little bit of history... The palms were prominent in the rededication of the temple by the Maccabeans in 156 B.C. Uh, Used to celebrate Simon's victory over the Syrians, 141 B.C. They later appear on coins uh, made by the insurrectionists during the Jewish wars against Rome, A.D. 66 to 70. That's going to be after. 132 to 135. It becomes symbolic of Israel and, and, and our desire for a king. Our celebration of a king. We want salvation. We want deliverance. So all of that is probably in play. Mark chapter 11 says, Many spread their cloaks on the road. John doesn't record that, so that's happening as well. We want deliverance. We're excited. Celebration. Palm trees. Coats down. This is all what we would say is fit for a king. Then look at verse 13, a bit of a transition. What are they doing? They're crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even, that is in particular, even the king of Israel. So now we know, we're not speculating about what's happening. Now we know that this is what it's all been figuring. Hosanna uh, could be translated, save us now! In fact, that is how it's translated more so in the text that it's taken from. Psalm 118, verse 25. Save us, which is what's being quoted. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray. Give us success. Deliverance. Salvation. Psalm 118, 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. It was common in ancient Israel to sing these texts when it came to festivals. Every morning they would sing the text of Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. And at the beginning of the day they would sing this, Hosanna, God save us. We're waiting, we're longing, do what you've done before. We're desperate, we need you to intervene. And here are the people, here are the crowds, who knows how many of them. They would have known about Jesus. They would have known what he's done. Maybe he's the one they're 
pointing out that He is the one. God, save us. It's a good request. What's interesting, though, is you have a temporal, temporary kind of deliverance, which is legitimate. Let's not downplay that. But what we've been hearing again and again in John's Gospel account is Jesus not just giving life, temporal life and temporal freedom. Jesus again and again underscores and emphasizes that you trust in Him not just for temporary life, in particular, right? You know where I'm going. It's emphasized again and again, eternal life, eternal life, eternal life, eternal life. And so the people are asking for the right thing when they see Jesus. Probably in a way that they don't quite even understand though. They need deliverance from the Romans. But they need deliverance from the consequence of sin. They need deliverance from death. They need ultimate deliverance, which Jesus has been talking about. But time and time again, the people have been confused. They didn't really understand. So here they're seeing him as a savior, but he's more than they bargained for, no doubt. And we, we have the benefit of understanding more, more that's involved. It would be a good study sometime if you're ever interested in trying to just think through John. Where is life and eternal life emphasized throughout? And it's a bit of a... Well, it's a big emphasis. But these folks are not quite seeing that. Maybe just bringing a little bit more fullness to the, tech, to the picture would be what it says in Mark's account, Mark 9 and 10, or excuse me, Mark 11, 9 and 10. You just listen. And those who went out before and those who followed were shouting. So they're going to surround him by now. Hosanna! God, save us! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. How about verse 10? Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. So we, now we, we understand even a little bit more. We're, we're waiting for the one that we've been waiting for since Second Samuel. God promised to deliver us and he would be one who is in the line of David. And, and so when they're doing what they're doing, they're saying, God, is this the one? Please do what you promised to do. Okay. Before we come to verse 14, I did also find it interesting, it just came back into my mind that historians would tell us, and New Testament experts would tell us, that Hosanna, yes, can be literally translated save, save us now, deliver us, bring us freedom, that idea, but that it seems to have become more generically used as a generic statement of praise. And sometimes generic is good. Seems like here that generic isn't so good. God, you're wonderful. God, you're awesome. We praise you. We worship you. God, save us. Deliver us. They really need it more than they even think. Okay, let's move to the action of Jesus. Verse 14 says, and Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. 
fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. There's actually more involved if we look at all four accounts, how all of this transpires. Not less, but more. But here, here's the donkey. Jesus is going to enter into the city of God, the unique dwelling of God, as the one the people think is perhaps in fulfillment of the promise to David, the forever ruling, reigning, ultimate delivering king who will never die, by the way, Second Samuel. And he's going to enter on a colt. Now, we can go two ways here. We can say, oh, cult, symbol of humility. And we would be right, I think. Or we could say, oh, cult, symbol of royalty. And we would be right. I think sometimes what we do is we just make a quick decision and we, we don't have any room for anything in between. We do know on occasion... That instead of coming on a horse, a war horse, and conquering and defeating your foes, and we're going to read it in our text, the donkey is symbolic of peace. You're not coming to fight, you're coming because there is peace, or you're coming bringing peace. But don't think that royalty didn't sometimes come on something other than a horse. They came on, on occasion, on donkeys because the the emphasis on the syllable is it's about peace it's not about weakness humility in that sense yes he's humble no doubt about it he's unlike other kings but the emphasis would be i think he's coming as, as as a peaceful one Let's go ahead. If you just want to listen, you can look it up if you'd like. Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10, which is where this comes from. Zechariah 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Oh, that's our verbiage from our text. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous... And having salvation is he, humble, so there is the emphasis on humility, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot of Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. So he's going to stop the oppression via his peace from Jerusalem and battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. The emphasis is on the peace. His rule, so it's not without power, because His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Our text is just having us know, and Jesus is having us know. He's the fulfillment of the Zechariah prophecy. Yes, He is going to bring peace, but He's going to bring peace in a powerful way, but not in the way that would have otherwise been expected. 
Let's keep going. The disciples in verse 16, it says, His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, that's after resurrection, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So later on, they're going to go back and go, Oh! Now we get it. Now we can connect the dots. Oh, now, by the way, we're going to read our Old Testament in light of our New Testament. And it will make sense. That's what they're going to do, right? These things had been written about him, it says. Zechariah had been written about him. And now that we've seen this happen, we go, oh, yeah. It's him. This happened because he's the one. And now they get it. Now they understand. They don't have blinders like 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and 4. They can read the old and light of the new and go, oh, that, he's the one. And what's that going to do? That's going to cause them to say, he's the trustworthy one. He was the one we were waiting for. We, we trust in him. Let's now move to the response of the crowd. Verse 17. The, the, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb, reaching back to the earlier chapter, and raised him up from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. Now, 17 and 18 are like kind of a... That's kind of irrelevant. But it's actually not irrelevant because 17 and 18, we've got the crowd who were there with the Lazarus raising from the dead incident. So the crowd is there. They observe that coming up out of the tomb. They'd heard he had done the sign, so they're there and they continue to bear witness. Okay, I want to make sure we see the point of that. They're the crowd. They're not the religious professionals trying to invent something, create something. This is not about the Illuminati. This is the crowd who saw Lazarus, empty tomb, raised from the dead, and they're still the ones who are watching this. They're the Joes and Sallys. Sorry if your name is Joe or Sally. The, they're just the regular people. But that's how the Bible is actually put together, with eyewitness testimony by the regular people. Jesus is the one. Now, not everybody's seeing him for who he is, but some are seeing him for who he is. He's the one who had power over dead people who by then, King James English, stinketh. Eyewitness testimony, we saw it. And they're able to now put two and two together and connect the dots. He's the one who is Hosanna fulfillment. He's the Savior. He's the Deliverer. He's the King. He's the fulfillment of Zechariah. Oh, yeah. But I love it that it's the crowd. And they're continuing to bear witness. Jesus is the one worthy of our trust because he has the power to raise the dead. He's not just a miracle worker. He's the Messiah Savior. He's the long-awaited promised King. He's the one who will save his people from their sins. 
And then we have the response of the Pharisees. The religious establishment, by the way. Verse 19, So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. What are they saying? By letting him live. Right? Look, the world has gone after him. And they're saying more than they even know. Because we're not going to get to it today, but when we move on, yeah, the world has gone after him. That could emphasize lots of people, but not only do we have Jews, we're going to see in our very next verses we have Gentiles. Oh, by the way, that's how it's supposed to be because he's the savior of the world. Oh, by the way, that's how it's supposed to be because he's the one to bring salvation to all nations. The world is going after him. I think they're using it in the sense of this is out of control. There are many. We see other examples of the Jews speaking in these terms that this happens to everyone. It's the whole world, even if that's not literally meant. For sure they're meaning he's got this huge crowd of people going after him. But they don't even realize what they're saying when it's world because the very next verse, we've got Gentiles. And indeed, the world is after him because he's not just the savior of the Jews. Which, by the way, would put him as a greater king even not just in Israel, but even over those Romans. He is going to be shown to be the king of kings and lord of lords, not just the king of Palestine. It's fascinating, I think, even if it's not clear to them they're saying such things. Let's talk about Palm Sunday and the irony of Palm Sunday. You might be thinking, oh, this is a bummer you preach this. It's May. You're kind of late. I'm with you. Sometimes I wish things worked out differently. Palm Sunday. Good idea? Bad idea? It's kind of like saying, is it a good idea to have a cross in a church? Or a bad idea? Should we like crosses? Should we not like crosses? It's kind of interesting when you read experts in the New Testament, you read commentators, believers, something Palm Sunday is a great idea, right? Let's make sure that we have palms on Palm Sunday and we pass them out and, and we talk about Hosanna. And other commentators, believers, like-minded, say, why in the world? I bet some of you have never thought about this. Why in the world would we perpetuate this kind of empty zeal? Because these are the very same ones we'll learn about in John chapter 19 who say what? Crucify him! Kill him! They're the Palm Sunday people. It's interesting. It's interesting if you want to think in terms of how many people are all excited to go to church on Palm Sunday and they don't really even know what Jesus actually did? That would actually fit more of the historic account. So in that sense, I don't want anything to do with Palm Sunday. 
I just want to go to our family meeting today and go to a Mother's Day and just spoil everybody's churches. You dumb people in your Palm Sunday. I don't really. Okay? I'm not even going to bring it up. I'm going to bring them flowers. <laughs> but see, the other side of the argument is, the irony of they, they, they don't really know what they're doing. They don't really know what they're saying. Think about the cross. Why in the world would we want to lift up and decorate and wear around our necks this awful Roman execution method? Terrible. But see, that's the irony. The Apostle Paul saying, I committed to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It's terrible. But it's actually wonderful because it's actually God's means for our forgiveness because He's the substitute. Cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. He becomes the curse for us so that we don't have to undergo the condemnation. Palm Sunday, Hosanna, God save us. He's the one. Yeah, those people don't even realize what they're saying because of what they will say. But they're saying the right thing because he really is the one. And so maybe next year we'll do poems. Or not. But think in these terms, this, this kind of ironic reality. And you say... This bad is meant for good. This good is meant for bad, which ultimately in the end actually speaks to what's good. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. Please know this. The next time Jesus comes, according to Revelation chapter 19, He comes on a war horse. Same king, because kings came on donkeys bringing peace, and kings came on horses bringing retribution and condemnation. And so Revelation 19 kind of puts another interesting point on this, and that's why in the book of Revelation, there is this call for people to trust in Christ. To all who thirst, come. It's kind, it's generous. It's inviting. It's urgent. It's important because next time the king enters and it's very, very different. He comes with a sword, it says. King of kings and Lord of lords tattooed on his thigh. He will put down all objectors. So the message is trust in Christ because he is the great king. The Prince of Peace, but Lord of Lords. We're going to stop there for this morning. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for the, the Lord Jesus, and thank you for all the complexity of these things. We're thankful that people said things and did things even though they didn't understand. But we're also grateful for the fact that you're a God who has gracious decrees and has a purpose and a plan, and that that purpose and plan is unfolding, and it is certainly unfolding in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're thankful to be able to trust in Him for our peace with you. Thank you so much for your provision. Thank you for your encouragement. Thank you for the fact that all who've trusted in Christ are guaranteed resurrection and new life 
in a way far greater than Lazarus. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.